Hi, Tony Hines here, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Great to be here. Have you ever wondered what it means to have an ethical supply chain? Ethics is about doing the right things. And when we think about doing the right things, it's incumbent on each of us to make judgment calls on the basis of moral judgments. Now, you might recall that the founding father of economics, Adam Smith, was professor of moral philosophy at Glasgow University. And in 1759, he wrote his first book, A Theory of Moral Sentiments. Back in 2013, something strange happened at the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh, which claimed 1,130 lives and injured thousands more people. It sent shockwaves across the manufacturing industry, particularly in clothing and beyond. It was a historic failure of textile and garment manufacture, and people began to ask questions about the ethics of supply chain practices, not just in the textile and clothing industries, but in other industries too, where there was persistent human rights issues, corruption, and environmental risks shifting the nature of the arrangements in those supply chains. As supply chains have become more complex and global, it's been more difficult to get a handle on not just the legal aspects of supply chains, but on the moral and ethical judgments that organisations make when they enter into supply chain arrangements. Consumers also began to ask questions and began to think about their purchasing decisions. So it wasn't just organisational procurement that was at the heart of this, but it was also about choices that consumers make at the final steps in supply chains. Many people also believe that moral judgments are important, but missing from management ethos. And they see management as simply rational decisions about the economics of business and not what's right or wrong in the process of doing business. And is that the missing ingredient when it comes to those firms that build better reputations, better brands, and have better connections with supply chain partners and indeed with customers? Are the moral firms better at building relationships? Angel Guria is the Secretary General of the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. And here's what he said. The business community has a responsibility to conduct business in a way that takes into account both the bottom line and the impact of their activities on society. The OECD due diligence guidance is a major milestone in ensuring that governments and businesses can work together to drive more inclusive and sustainable growth across the world through more responsible business conduct and due diligence across supply chains. The OECD set up a national contact point for responsible business conduct in 48 countries who signed up to the OECD guidelines. Anyone can submit grievances to the MCP concerning any business operating in or from their country which is causing or linked to alleged corporate, social, environmental, labour or human rights issues. And there can be remedies for the victims. 
which bring about significant change in corporate conduct, contributing to the prevention of future harm. There are thousands of companies involved in global supply chains, and it's difficult to know who is responsible for how those supply chains work. And we've seen voluntary arrangements by organisations trying to do the right thing, but sometimes they're frustrated by a rogue partner or even a rogue state. Since 2000, the national contact points have accepted more than 450 cases, addressing impacts from business operating in 100 countries and territories. And the majority of submissions focus on employment and worker issues, 54%, followed by general policies which include expectations related to due diligence, 49%, human rights issues, 32%, and environment, 20%. Knowing where to begin when we look at the ethical supply chain is an important consideration. We can think about the ethics of sourcing, procurement, operations, labour practices, market arrangements, partnership arrangements, the buyer-seller arrangements, and the transportation and distribution of goods and services in any supply chain. There are just so many parts to these complex global supply chains, and all these moving parts can have separate elements which demand ethical consideration. When it comes, of course, to global supply chains, one of the pressure points has been, for example, organisations in the West, in the developed economies, purchasing and sourcing materials and products from countries where labour rates are much lower and the cost of production is much lower. And that opens an arrangement which can be considered exploitative. And exploitation is part of the consideration for any organisation dealing in these complex global supply chains. Is it right that we pay labour rates which are very low to supply goods which are priced very high in developed economies? And how can we ensure that there is fair pay, that human rights are not violated in the factories making goods for these developed markets in the underdeveloped parts of the world. It's 10 years now since the Rana Plaza disaster in Dakar in Bangladesh, when an eight-storey building collapsed, killing 1,134 people and injuring more than 2,500 more people. It was a catastrophe on a grand scale. And the question is, have we learned the lessons? Have the brands that were involved that day at Rana Plaza changed their supply chain practices to improve things? When we've got the powerful and the powerless in relationships which are market-centred, it's a difficult and challenging position. At one end, we've got the big brands and the retailers making profit from the production of low-cost supplies in far-lying lands. Those big brands dictate prices, payment terms, supply chain arrangements, and everything else. They determine the wage rates of those making the goods, and they put pressure on suppliers to ensure they comply with the guidelines and production specifications supplied by the powerful brands. Retrospective discounting is common in the textile and clothing industries. That adds to the pressure. Cancelling orders is a regular occurrence. Delaying payments and refusing to accept completed orders if markets are not working well in the home 
destination for those goods. The garment industry, of course, is mainly female labour, more than 70%. And those females that work in the garment industry comprise many young girls and women trying to make a living in a difficult workplace situation. There's often sexual harassment and workplace abuses. And of course, there might also be corruption. And that's what's come to light from the Rana Plaza example. It was an eight-story factory building that collapsed. And it was found in the investigations that followed. It was built on unsuitable land. Construction regulations were bypassed. Shortcut payments were made to people to get things passed that shouldn't have been. And the building materials might have not been to the appropriate specifications. Officials took bribes. And it was a perfect storm. And they're not necessarily alone in this situation. We haven't had a disaster as bad as the Rana Plaza, but there have been others. At Rana Plaza, in the building itself, cracks had appeared some time before the disaster happened. But despite those cracks appearing in the fabric of the building, people were forced to work and continue under pressure to produce the goods. Deadlines had to be met. Contracts depended on it. Supply chain arrangements could be turned off like a tap and business could be lost. And the small profit made from the garments could be lost. So the powerful pressured the powerless into actions that coerced workers to work in unsafe conditions. Rana was a businessman and it is he after which the Rana Plaza was named. He was an entrepreneur. He'd bought a piece of land and it wasn't very good land. There was a lake on this land so the drainage wasn't fantastic and he built a four-story building. But after a few years decided that this four-story shopping mall at the bottom and factory units higher up the building was not big enough for the needs of the businesses occupying the building. So he got planning permission to add a fifth floor. But he didn't stop there. He continued to eight floors and he didn't get planning permission for those. And on the top floor of the building, the generators were installed, heavy machinery. So towards the top of the building, we had some very heavy machinery in the building. Not just the generators, but also some of the textile equipment that was in there too. So the foundations of the building probably weren't strong enough for everything that was piled into the building. And there were reports from people working in the building that when the generators began to operate on the top floor, the building shook. And so the workers inside knew that this was a dangerous building. The day before the collapse of the building, cracks had appeared and there were power cuts. And they'd started the machinery on the day of the collapse. The generators were cranked up to supply power to people working in the factory units. And it was that that was the final straw for that building collapsing. On the previous day, when cracks appeared, workers had been evacuated from the building and many on the lower floors were told not to come in the next day until the problem was sorted out. However, those working in the clothing factory units were told that they had to come in because contract dates were due and if they didn't turn up, they would be docked their wage. So a lot of pressure both on the workforce and of course those contractors in the building to deliver product for the contracts they'd entered. Mm-hmm.
Myanmar has been a country in political turmoil. This has gone on for some time. It was exasperated by the military coup against the civilian government in February 2021, and there have been violent crackdowns on protests and widespread human rights abuses, which have provoked global condemnation. It's long been a sourcing favourite for many high street retailers, where they went to procure low-priced products to sell in high-priced markets. And the clothing industry plays a big part in the country's economic development. It's mainly staffed by female labour, more than 70%, similar to Bangladesh, and it makes up a large proportion of the country's external income. Many workers have lost their lives, not just their jobs, but their lives for protesting against injustice, human rights, low wage rates, and they've been forced to go to work, and exploitation has been ripe. United Nations general principles talk about respect, protect, and remedy frameworks, and it's been extremely challenging to get results in the military-ruled Myanmar. Workers are in precarious employment, there's sexual violence, and there's reports of child labour. The military action has placed substantial limits on civil freedoms, and the state is often involved in the widespread corruption that permeates the country's activities. The military junta has failed to protect human rights, and instead there's been a strong indication that they've actually been an apparatus that's perpetrated violence, abuse of human rights, and persecuted those who attempt to defend them. Anybody wanting to do ethical trade with such a country would obviously realise that it's impossible in the present conditions. The problem, of course, is the workers in that country will suffer again because they'll lose their incomes and their livelihood. So it's a real conundrum of how to resolve these types of problems when it comes to considering ethical supply chain initiatives. To have ethical supply chains, you need visibility in the supply chain system. It may be that you have clear visibility with Tier 1 and even Tier 2 suppliers, but what happens in Tier 3 and Tier 4 is also important if you want the ethical supply chain. So visibility is at the centre of maintaining an ethical supply chain. It's no good having a rogue supplier at Tier 3 or Tier 4, and audit checks are necessary. And those audit checks have to be spot checks if you want to ensure that the supply chain is ethical. Global supply chains, of course, can stretch over long distances, and they're geographically dispersed. So if you operate global supply chains, there is a cost to maintaining ethical supply chains. And you need to recognise that that cost has to be paid to maintain reputation and to make sure that the brand, your brand, is protected. When something goes wrong, of course, in a supply chain, then it can be big news and it can go round the globe fast. There was a BBC Panorama programme about the true cost of tea and it focused on allegations that workers in the tea supply chain in Kenya had been subjected to exploitation and if they wanted a job on the tea plantation, they were asked to provide sex for work. And it's been going on for more than 10 years. It's a deeply concerning human rights violation. And it may not just be happening in Kenya. 
This could be going on elsewhere too. Companies have to move beyond the ethical audit, although the ethical audit is important, but audits consistently fail to identify the problems and they typically under-report the prevalence of such issues. Organisations that you deal with should have codes and standards and policies that you can check as a purchaser from them. And the criteria should be clear and it should follow best practice. Companies need to tackle the root cause of human rights abuse. And a good starting point is to follow the UN Guiding Principles. There's a link in the notes to the UN Guiding Principles so you can have a read. Companies have to take responsibility for their sourcing and purchasing practices and they have to make sure that these supply chains are ethical. Many of the biggest brands in the United Kingdom buy tea from Kenya, grown in the Rift Valley, and two companies in particular were the subject of the BBC Panorama programme where there was allegations of sexual exploitation. Unilever and James Finlay. Unilever sold its tea business in Kenya to Lipton's shortly after the documentary was published by Panorama. But if you look on all the shelves for tea, you'll find Kenya tea is prevalent. And that's because it's good tea. But we want to make sure that the supply comes from ethical traders, people who respect human rights. When it comes to having policies, you have to go beyond the lip service and, of course, the website claims. You have to ensure that those policies are being maintained by the supplier companies, that they're following the guidelines that you've laid down, and that they're regularly checked so they know that these things are serious. And, if necessary, you have to withdraw from the company to demonstrate to others that you mean what you say. If you claim to be a occurring brand and you deal with suppliers that are unethical, then you're just as bad as they are. It's necessary, of course, to have transparency in those supply chain relationships. And it would be good, wouldn't it, if you took time to speak to the workers who supplied your tea or any other product, no matter how briefly, just to see how they felt about working with your company. Now, I can hear some of you saying, well, that's a bit naive, isn't it? Well, not really. It's just good manners. And it demonstrates your ethical credentials, that you want to know that these suppliers are following the procedures, the policies, the processes laid down, which ensure that the supply chain is ethical. And consumers can recognise the real from the claim. Well, that's it for this episode. And I hope you've learned something about ethical supply chains from listening today. Don't forget to drop by the Chain Reaction website and pick up other episodes that you might be interested in. And I'll see you next time. So from me, Tony Hines, I'm signing off. And I'll see you next time. Bye for now. The Chain Reaction Podcast is written, presented and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here.
here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.